This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Alex Scott, a rising senior at the University of Arizona, but don't let that fool you. Alec has worked in research computing, is an experienced Go programmer, and has just finished an internship at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So Alec, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you for having me on, Vanessa. So let's first start with your background. I kind of have some inside information that you run servers in your house and you have a passion for distributed computing and build systems. But let's go back kind of as far as you want to take us and tell us about your background, your family, and where all this energy has come from. There are definitely two ways that I got into research computing and high-performance computing. The first one, as I think most of us did, was video games. In high school, like most of us start building computers to play better games and have better graphics. And that was my initial start into building computers. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And then I started messing around with the thing called Linux. And I got really involved in that, started messing around with the community there. The other side of it is that both of my parents are researchers at a university. They're both biologists. And so they were starting to run some big genome simulations, calculations, and, and trying to figure out how long ago, in terms of millions of years, different species of plants diverged. And so they were starting to use the university supercomputer. And being the, the kid in the house that knew Linux, it was a pretty easy swap for me to start helping them and writing scripts for them to use these different Bayesian analysis tools and tree and genome assemblers. So that, that's kind of where I got started. Back in high school, I remember the guy who runs the supercomputing department at their university lives a couple blocks down the street from me. And so I had seen him walking our dog and we got into talking one day and he offered for me to come down and see the university supercomputer. And I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. You know, many, many compute nodes all stacked together in a cluster. So he gave me a, a tour of that. I thought it was pretty cool at the time, but I was still maybe a little unsure. Initially, I was thinking more robotics than computer programming, but that quickly got weeded out. I think that I fell in love with computer programming pretty quickly once I started doing it. And so going into university at the U of A, I met Blake Joyce, who at the time was the assistant director of the research computing program. I just had happened one day to go to a morning breakfast with a professor who had done a lot of compiler research, and I was kind of interested in what she was doing. And, you know, I mentioned that I had run genome simulations and that type of HPC software, and I was interested in that world to her. And she, you know, pretty much immediately asked for my email and then CC'd an introduction between me and Blake. And kind of the rest is history. Blake and I hit it off very well. A couple of weeks after getting to know him, he offered me an internship working at the High Performance Computing Center at the University of Arizona. And then shortly there, after spending about a semester working with him as an intern, he offered me a paid position as a student, which was kind of my dream, right? Like these computers that I had kind of fallen in love with. And I'm definitely a hardware nerd. As you mentioned, I have a couple of servers that follow me around every year when I move for school. I think that it's great to have projects and build on them. And so I always liked the hardware side of it. And so to get to work with those machines at the university was great. But then through that, I met this amazing community. And, and through that community, I met you. 
something that kind of just hit me is it's it's really amazing how much of your path really was kind of just happenstance like you had a neighbor and then you had this opportunity and then you went to you know an event and you met someone just really quickly for our listeners Blake is in reference to Blake Joyce who was on the podcast I think sometimes last year that is exactly how I was acquainted with Alex so another happenstance it kind of makes me wonder how how much do you think when you're sort of figuring out your career and your path how much would you kind of attribute to just random luck like that? You got to be in the right spot. Going back to getting to meet the guy who runs the supercomputer at my parents' university. I guess being in the right spot in the sense of I was interested in computers and my parents knew about it and, and they were they had talked to him prior. So I had that introduction, which was amazing. Lots of universities have what are called surplus programs. And so their university has a surplus warehouse. And so every couple of years, they get rid of a bunch of servers. And I was dumb enough to save up a tiny bit of money and buy a couple servers. The servers were 25 to 30 bucks a piece, which is just ridiculous. I mean, they were things from the 90s or the early 2000s by about 20, I'm going to say 2014 was the time that I started doing this. So they were old, but they were still really fun. A couple of them sounded like jet engines. My dad and mom have been amazingly supportive in all of my computing adventures, right? Like they pushed me initially to learn a couple of instruments and to, to play sports. And then they slowly figured out that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Like, don't get me wrong, sports are quite fun. I'm more of a hiking, biking kind of guy than I am organized sports. But they really, once they saw that I was interested in computing, you know, they would find old computers from neighbors or our own old computers, and they would let me take them apart. And then they were, you know, nice enough that when dial-up was still a thing way, way back, even when you were taking up a phone line, they let me, you know, play around on the internet for a couple of hours. You know, I think them being really supportive helped me a lot and put me in the right spots to then have these chance meetings with people. That's totally fantastic. Your, your parents sound absolutely wonderful. And I think kind of the lesson for me and for others listening to the story right now is, you know, sometimes if we're kind of nervous to go to an event or to talk to our neighbor, just to like go for it, because you really just don't know what can come out of something like a conversation. Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best things I have ever done was to go to supercomputing 2019. It is still seared in my memory as just an amazing week. I was Really fortunate to, I learned about the conference and I was able to get some money from the honors department at the university, as well as from the lab, which Blake Joyce is another one of those people that I think that I'm very lucky in my life to have people that support me and also push me to be better. And so when I went to the, I think the CES program and a couple of other programs on campus, and they said, no, unless you're presenting a paper, we don't have money to take an undergrad. It's not normal for an undergrad to go to a research conference, but, you know, he was said to me, you know, these are academic institutions and this is what they're for really is to, to push you and to allow you to learn. And so he was able to get money from the lab itself to, you know, pay for a hotel room, which was immensely expensive in downtown Denver at the time and to pay for a, a ticket for me to be able to go to this. And so I would not have gotten as far as I have without having, you know, amazing people in my life. I guess that, you know, that goes hand in hand with if you have amazing people, but you're, you're not respecting them or you're maybe not putting in the work, like they're not always going to be there for you. But when you can find the match of, you know, maybe when you're a little bit of a workaholic, when you have people that pull you away from your work and say like, you know, you're, you're doing great work, but 
there are other things in life and like, let me help you grow in these other ways. Those people are invaluable resources. That is really valuable insight. So thinking of Blake, what the heck was it like to work in research computing? It was a lot of fun. I had the experience, not this past summer, but back in 2020 to work for a data science company in New York. And the people at that company were extremely nice and, and helped me grow as a programmer, but working in research is something very different. And at the CS department at the University of Arizona, I found that we're really pushed to go into industry. And I don't think that's a fault of their own, right? There's a lot more money in industry. There's many companies that are competing for computer science and math undergrads. And I kind of think that people are missing out though. You know, on the one hand, it totally makes sense why you're doing this. But on the other hand, I had been interested in research for a while and then coming into college, I really got this, oh, well, you want to go work at Google or you want to go work at Amazon. And finding someone like Blake and finding research computing was very refreshing because I think that most people can survive in industry. And I think that industry is quite fun. I think you can do cool stuff there. But I found that personally, I'm really attracted to maybe the freedom of working in some of research computing. I don't think that everybody who's a research software engineer has this level of freedom, but being able to say that I'm not completely driven by the bottom line of a company, but rather I have this question or these group of researchers that I'm working with have this question and we're invested in the project, not for the monetary gain at the end, but really because it, it's interesting to us. I found that the, the research software engineer position working at a university is a lot of fun and it's very different than industry, but I would say if there are any students listening to this that haven't considered trying to be a research software engineer at your university, there is a bunch of IT departments that don't know they need your help yet, but they definitely do. So you hinted at one of the quintessential problems of the research software engineering community or just the traditional academic fabric in general, and that is that there's this missing layer of support of programmers, of people that we are labeling now research software engineers. So I have two questions. The first is like, when did you first hear of this term research software engineer and how did it sort of resonate with you? And then how do you think that research software engineering relates to research computing? So I think the first time I ever heard of a research software engineer might have been on this podcast if it wasn't one of our early conversations or an early conversation with Blake in regards to you. Before hearing of research software engineer, at the university, we have a title, which I think is close, but not quite, which is a research computing facilitator, which is helping someone to use the HPC or help, helping someone to write software for their academic goals as part of the HPC. I suppose I always thought that sys admins maybe did more on the research computing side than they do, or not to their own fault, right? Like they are, they're taking care of these massive clusters. But when I was in high school meeting the guy who takes care of the supercomputing cluster at my parents' university, he came, similarly to you, came from a more academic background in a different science, or I think he came from CS, but then transitioned into, I was doing research and I found that I really liked using supercomputers at my own university and then decided that he wanted to do that for a career. A lot of the sysadmins I met love supercomputing, but they don't exactly have the research background. You know, they haven't done a master's or a PhD themselves. Not that I'm saying that you need that to be a research computing engineer at all. 
but they they haven't worked maybe as closely with researchers. You know, researchers are somebody that are using the supercomputer to them all the time, but not people that they are going to meetings with and writing code for and understanding the the questions of. And so a research software engineer to me, I figured that they would always exist. And I was kind of stunned when I found out that this was a new thing, or maybe that the classification of it was new. You know, maybe before it was computer science departments helping out biology departments or helping out the physics department, you know, two researchers kind of collaborating on something. But I, I think that it is a really important job that isn't represented well. And I think that you make a really good point that, you know, universities do need research software engineers, even if they don't know it already. A major part of computing in the next probably 10 or 15 years is like all of science right now is starting to build off computing. As more and more papers come out and you're doing, you know, simulations or you're doing big data analyses, you're going to need people who can bridge the gap between scientists who are able to look at this data and understand it and have the questions and people who can actually make efficient programs that are going to be able to you know, run in hopefully weeks instead of months. And those people are research software engineers. I think they are going to probably be what make certain schools really, really popular because if you're a professor in the next couple of years and you are trying to pick between, you have a couple of different job offers, you're in a good position, you're trying to pick a university. I think having the a team at a university that is going to possibly work off a of part of your grant, but you know, just having the resources there to say, hey, I'm new to high-performance computing, but I know this is the way my field is going and I need help getting started. And having a, a solid base of people who can help you with that and teach you to write good code, I think is going to be a make or break for a lot of universities. I too am hoping that RCs become part of what is now a very sort of old school traditional academic fabric where they don't exist. So you can imagine going to graduate school instead of only having two options like industry or academia, industry or academia, you have to choose. There's a third one where it's like, okay, you don't want to be a faculty or a postdoc, but you still want to work in research. You can be a research software engineer. And then I also have this hope that it feels like right now everyone kind of works in these little isolated clusters. And I hope that if we do start to establish RFC groups at different institutions, they start like talking to each other, even within an institution. You can imagine there's like two biology labs, like basically doing the same thing, but they don't talk to each other very much. So then the work is replicated. So just awareness and then training and then hopefully better communication. Exactly. I think that's very well said. I think that Universities typically have been very department-centric, right? Where you have people talking within their own departments, but now you have everybody who's wanting to use computing resources or who wants to do mathematical analysis. And I think that having some interdisciplinary freedom to go to other departments and ask for help or collaborate on papers is very valuable. At the University of Arizona, there's a, a group called the Bio5 Institute. And they bring together five different sciences from across the university, and they put all these people on in the same building on different floors so that it's very easy to go and ask somebody a question, right? Instead of walking all the way across campus, you're walking up a flight of stairs or you're walking a couple of offices over to somebody in climate science if you're in biology. And you say, I have this population and it's decreasing and I don't understand why, but maybe you have data that you're doing in a similar area that can open up a whole new field of questions and answers and help my problem become even more interesting. Definitely. So I want to do a little shift. You have a lot of cool projects that are going on. Do you want to tell us about a couple of them? There's probably 
two main projects in my life at the moment, and then a, a third, which just recently started at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. The first project is the one that I started working on with Blake and then met you through as part of a collaboration and we've been working on this summer while at Livermore. It is also kind of a, an independent project that was, was started out of the lab and, and is across a couple of institutions now, and that is Autumnus. A couple of years ago, Blake and I were sitting in his office and one of the, the fundamental problems at the U of A at the time was there are a bunch of researchers and they want to use a whole bunch of different software stacks. How can we make this easy? Because right now we have a form, which is really not that much better than like a Google form. And it says package requests. And you put in the name of your package and you really hope that one of the sysadmins can build it in a week or a month or else you're just waiting there. And that's a really bad situation because researchers are impatient because they've got this data and you know, rightfully so, they want to go and they want to throw it on the cluster and they want to get some answers out of it. But just to sit there and twiddle your thumbs and say, okay, well, I'm waiting for this other person who is horribly overworked to have to go and build my package and install it on the supercomputer is a frustrating position to be in. And so we were in this position of our team for the HPC isn't that big. There are three main sysadmins. We have three clusters. So there's about one sysadmin per cluster. There's also big networking storage that you have to deal with. And then you have almost 200 modules on a supercomputer. And those modules are constantly out of date. And so this first question came up of how many of the modules on our supercomputer are properly out of date? And is there an easier way that we could tell the sysadmins when something is out of date? And that became Lookout, which is on GitHub. It's a little command line utility that allows you to plug in the upstream URL for something on GitHub or GitLab or SourceForge. And over time, you can keep asking Lookout, hey, is this thing still up to date? And it'll run through everything that you've stored in the database or just a, a specific thing in the database and will tell you whether that thing is up to date or not. That's one of this whole other question, though. Of when a new release comes out for something, can we automatically rebuild it and can we ship it to researchers? And at the time that we started looking at this, I was looking at distribution platforms for modules because modules are great on the supercomputer, but oftentimes when you are using you know, some phylogenetic tree analysis tool on the supercomputer, it's not easy to also use that same thing on your laptop. Or if you are, you're using a graphical version on your laptop that is different than the command line version, and maybe you want to test out some command line tools on your laptop. And right over the fence, there were containers, and people were starting to use containers. And Blake and I said, why aren't there containers in HPC? Or at least, why aren't we using them on our cluster, right? Containers make it really easy to distribute software. There's great OCI registries, as you and I have spent a bunch of time playing around with and talking about. Containers do a really good job at distributing software. And the same software, because you're in this virtualization layer of you can run the same thing on your laptop, you can run the same thing on your cluster on your university. And if you outgrow the cluster on your university, you can run it on Jetstream, which is NSF's OpenStack cloud, or any number of cloud computing sharing options. Or I guess if you have enough money, you can go to AWS and run your analysis there. So the idea was, can we take containers? Can we automatically rebuild them when new updates come out for a piece of software so that there's always a human in the loop, right? We can improve an update, but can we have this container go out and rebuild automatically when the source code updates for some module on the HPC? And then can we install all of these containers on the HPC 
as modules? And can we make it look like nobody has to care that they're containers? So the first part is Automus. That's what we settled on. It is a build system built on top of GitHub Actions. It wakes up every morning. There's a bot form of it called Binoc, which is a bit of a joke to binoculars. We had Lookout and we said, you know, what, what does a Lookout use to go find all of the updates? Well, it uses binoculars, but we decided to shorten it to Binoc. So Binoc wakes up every morning at approximately seven o'clock Pacific time. And it scans through the entire repository of containers that we're watching. And it says, do any of these containers have new source code versions available today when they didn't yesterday? And when it finds them, then it automatically submits a job to that same registry repository on Automus, and that kicks off a build. The build is using SPAC, which is a great package manager. I'll admit I'm a little biased. I just spent the last couple of months working with Todd Gamblin on the SPAC team at Livermore. Vanessa is also there. To other people that don't know SPAC, it truly is a really cool open source community. Everyone has been super nice. So looking at how could we build these containers reliably, there were really a couple of options, right? We could play around with Nix, which is another package manager. We could do it completely from source, but that was going to be a lot of work on our end. Or we could adopt another package manager that's already being used in HPC and has a bunch of the build recipes for these tools already available. So we settled on SPAC. Now, Automus finds an update automatically. It builds it with SPAC. The builds either succeed or they fail. In the case that it doesn't build successfully, either because a dependency updated or it's a brand new version and there's some new configuration flag, we can go through and we can inspect those pretty quickly. And then we can resubmit them to the build system and have them build possibly a couple of times until they build successfully. But once they build successfully, we can distribute them as containers to GitHub's container registry to Docker Hub, basically wherever you find your containers. And then comes into Vanessa's contribution to this called Singularity HPC, which is a tool that allows you to download the containers and create module files and set them all up on your HPC just as modules so that you can use them on an HPC without ever caring that they're containers. That in a nutshell is Automus and Singularity HPC. And Vanessa, if you want to talk about Singularity HPC or have anything that I didn't cover in that, you can jump in. That's totally perfect. That summarizes it. I would note for those folks that are interested that it supports, <laughs> the name is kind of misleading. It's called Singularity HPC, but it actually supports Singularity containers, Podman containers, Docker containers, and in the works, some other container technologies like Shifter. And I'll, I'll probably eventually look at Charlie Cloud too. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Arkin? Absolutely. So the second project that I've had for a little while now is called Arkin. Arkin came from me getting kind of depressed that I was watching a whole bunch of researchers struggle to find good cloud storage after the grants run out. And I think this is a fundamental problem in research at the moment, where you have research that is for a fixed term grant, and that's how it's been for at least as long as I can remember. But now that you have subscription plans and cloud storage on AWS or on Google's cloud platform, once your grant runs out, you still have data up there. And sure, you can download that data and you can prune it, but if you have supplemental data for a paper, how cool would it be for somebody not to have to email you and say, you know, I, I love access to this data. Like, what if it was just all available? And so besides both being researchers, my mom is also the curator of a herbarium. A herbarium is a collection of dried plant specimens. They're types, so they're how you define a species for a plant 
is really you go out and you collect that plant and you say, whatever I have collected here, we've never seen before. It doesn't look like anything else. This is the definition of a species. It's kind of a little old, you know, in physics now we're defining all of these, you know, what is a meter? What is the speed of light? What is the mass of a kilogram? They, they're all based off of mathematical equations, but you can't really do that with plant specimens and you, you can't do it with beetle specimens or pollen specimens. And so for all of those, biology has these smaller library collections to kind of define the science itself. And so she's the curator of a herbarium, but as part of that, she got an NSF grant to image about 160,000 specimens within that herbarium. And a couple of years into the project, the group, the other NSF funded group that she was using for cloud storage died out. They were given a, another fixed term grant. And after that, we're told to make a business plan and they couldn't make a business plan in time or they, they couldn't make one that worked. And so she was left staring at me going, can you build me a server? And I said, okay, this is ridiculous. There are researchers that are struggling to find storage for their all sorts of different stuff, whether that's papers, there are hundreds of academic journals that have gone, disappeared off of the internet over the last 20 years. I think a fair number of them have been backed up by private groups, but it just sucks that there isn't a good way to get affordable storage. And so that was the idea behind Arkin. For a long time, I have been a, a big fan of the interplanetary file system, also called IPFS. It's a distributed storage protocol that basically lets me say, I have this file, I'm gonna put it on IPFS on my computer. If you need to access it, you're gonna actually pull that file directly from my computer to your computer without anybody in between. And that's great for affordable storage because the true price of storage isn't the hardware. It might seem a little crazy because you get great economies of scale with something like Amazon or Amazon Web Services, but a terabyte on Amazon costs you about $20 a terabyte to host and about $90 a terabyte to actually pull that terabyte of data back down to your local computer. To buy a, a terabyte hard drive on Amazon is almost about 20 to 30 bucks. That might be used also included, but you know, we'll say for 50 bucks, you can get a, a terabyte hard drive and that hard drive is going to last you longer than a month. And so if you can actually get people to use old laptops or desktop computers that they have around, or my favorite use case is Raspberry Pis. They're super small and very cheap computers. They cost about 35 bucks when it's not the pandemic and there's a run on silicon and th they can make great little storage devices. And so Arkin uses IPFS to create a distributed digital archive is what I've been calling it. We're trying to link together a whole bunch of Raspberry Pis and donations from other people. It's kind of like folding at home, except for storage, where instead of providing the extra CPU usage on your laptop when you're not using it or on a, a gaming computer, you're giving people 50 gigabytes or 100 gigabytes of extra space and you're donating that to researchers in need. Or you can buy a Raspberry Pi and a hard drive, plug it in and give somebody a terabyte or five terabytes relatively easily and Raspberry Pis are very power efficient. It's not going to cost you very much in the terms of usage. And the idea was that all of these can also act as geo-redundant backups to each other. So because you have multiple computers storing this data, you know, if your donation computer that you're running in your 
house goes down for some reason, somebody's still going to be able to pull the files just fine. And so even if a whole university gets wiped out, their entire library department with those archive servers is down, if they're donating space to Arkin, that small portion of the archive goes away temporarily while the power is out, but you're still able to stream this data to your computer, save the files, upload new files. The system doesn't care because it's completely distributed. And as long as there is free space on the cluster, we can use that to store research data that is otherwise at risk of being lost. It sounds like technically this is very feasible to do. We already have all the technology. I guess my question is, what are some of the cultural challenges with respect to distributed computing? So the main cultural challenge I think that we're going to have to get over is the sense of my data versus your data. I think the hardest thing with Arkin is going to be to sell people to put something in their house or to use plug in an old computer or an old tablet and say, this isn't storing your data. You know, Unlike Google Drive or Dropbox or something where you can upload your own files, the process of Arkin is much more like submitting a paper. All of the data going to Arkin has to go through review. And it's generally from researchers who, who really need the data and can't afford to buy it themselves. There is going to be this block of, well, why am I doing something and not getting something out of it? And this is a, a long-standing, I don't know if I would call it an issue of capitalism, but it, it's a, an aspect of society that capitalism doesn't well address, which is, you know, why would you fund NASA? Well, 20 years down the line, we've found that NASA helped to develop a lot of different science and helped push the field in ways that we didn't really understand at the time. And so there is a long return on investment through funding something like NASA, or maybe giving your data to Arkin or hosting some storage space on Arkin. It's not something you're going to see in a month. It's not something you might see in a year, but in a couple of years, if someone says, you know, I was only able to do this project because of the resources of Arkin, like your contribution has helped that happen. And I think that distributed computing in general is hard to get over maybe a sense of security. In Arkin, there's, you know, people can mess up the files on their own node, sure, but when they try to go send that data to another node, the other node is going to say the expected content of the file, which is called a hash, that hash doesn't match the data that I'm receiving. And so I'm just going to forget about it and mark this node is not a trustworthy node. Go grab the data from another node because supposedly the data should be on between three to five other nodes at any given time. And so you have other options. With distributed computing, I think the problem is really the, the sense of insecurity, right? When you're running something on a cluster and it's on your own university campus, it's very easy to say, oh, well, I know this data is secure and it's guarded. In distributed programming, you really have to expect or accept that cryptography and the, the software itself is going to protect your data more so than the physical security of computers. And I think that that's hard to get around and trust because you know, every day in the news, we see that different companies were breached and how can we trust these people? And in the case of Arkin, all of the data is unencrypted and available for anyone. It's a public archive. And so I don't have a lot of hope that it will ever transition very well into private data, something that somebody wants to keep classified and replicated across the cluster. But I think that the, the level for that distributed programming is coming, and it's just something that we're going to have to get over that you know, centralized computing might make you feel safer because there's a central entity behind it that's providing trust. And I don't think that AWS or Google Cloud is really ever going to go anywhere 
because they have one, they have economies of scale that you can't get with smaller groups, but also they have this level of trust. And you're always going to have people like Florence Livermore, who is doing classified research and who can't, you know, maybe for, at least for the beginning, can't trust on the cryptographic algorithms used in distributed programming. Interesting. So we will put links to both Arkin and Autumnus in the show notes so that the folks that are interested can see if they can get involved or help and that sort of thing. One thing that listeners obviously wouldn't be able to see because they haven't looked at the source code for these things is that you really love programming in Go. Can you tell us what you love about Go? Go is definitely my favorite language, at least at the moment. And it's an odd one because I've never actually taken a course in Go at the university. We've been taught Python and Java and C, even to some extent Haskell and Prolog and Ruby, but never Go. I think that's a shame in, in some parts. Go is a really fun programming language, at least for me, because the tooling around it is so good. Go has a very opinionated compiler, which means that it actually won't let you compile a program if something doesn't match the name requirements. So Go uses what is called camel case, which is instead of separating a word via an underscore, it's instead going to separate it by having every word in your compiled string start with an uppercase letter. So Go actually won't let you compile a program, I believe, if you're using snake case, which sounds very odd at first glance, but it makes for a really nice ecosystem of unlike Python or Java, where there are there are standards and most people follow these standards, but not everyone. And so occasionally you run into code that is very differently formatted and it takes a while to kind of figure out what's going on. Go code is inherently very easy to read once you get to know Go because all Go programs look very similar. I also like Go because the nice things about Java are that it's a compiled language, it's statically typed. And so if the program compiles, it'll generally run without overflow errors or you know maybe indexing improperly. Go is very similar for me. I feel that at this point I can write Go and as long as there are no squiggly underlined red characters via the Go format tool or a, a linting tool, my Go code is generally going to compile and it's probably going to run. And unless I'm doing something really weird, I'm not going to be messing up variable names or types later on like I would be in a scripting language. And for me, Go felt as fast as Python for a prototyping language, but it also felt almost as fast as something like Rust. Now, it truly isn't quite as fast as something as Rust because Rust is incredible in the way that it deconstructs for loops, et cetera. I wrote a Monte Carlo simulation in both Go and Rust a couple of years ago as a proof of concept. And the one in Go ran in about eight seconds. And I believe the one in Rust ran in maybe 0.8 of a second for the same input. So there is comparable differences in some workflows, but not all. So I would say that Go, Go is truly great because that it gives you the speed of programming in something like Python, but it's compiled so that you can distribute binaries and you can make your containers much smaller than you can with something like Python because you don't have to include an entire runtime environment. It's also got a great package import system. I'm sure if I spent more time with Python's import system, I would come to love it, but I haven't spent that much time with it yet. And I just find that it is sometimes problematic that Go relies so heavily on GitHub repositories and you know importing everything from these source locations. But I think that it makes for a great experience of if you want to try someone's code out or you want to build on top of it, it's really easy to import it into your piece of software that you're using at the moment. 
tell Go to import the modules that are defined in the Go code that you just wrote and click run and be able to play around with it. If you're using something like VS Code, Go is also great because it's got great autocomplete. You're able to import the autocomplete system from all of the modules that you're using. So it's really a different experience of being able to explore a package in code rather than reading through the documentation. All in all, Go makes for a, a really versatile language that is also fast and is, at least to me, very fun to program in. So we're coming up on time. I have just three more questions. The first Absolutely. is about going back to school. So I think you're going back to school in just about a week's time. Yeah, next Monday. Wow. So how are you feeling going back after being remote for so long? It's definitely going to be a shift. It's weird to think that it's my senior year and I truly only spent about a year and a half on the campus at this point. I'm very lucky to be in computer science and math, which both scale really well with being remote. You know, if I was in biology or pre-med, it's really hard to have the same quality of learning without going in and being able to do dissections or being able to see something in a lab in person. And so I don't think that I have missed out on that much being remote. I'm very lucky in compared with other people in other majors, but it, it will be weird to sit in one, a lot of different buildings all throughout the day. You know, you're you're picking up your computer and you're walking from one building to the other, which I haven't done in about a, a year and a half at this point. So moving around will be different, but also it's going to be the, the people. I like to think that I am still kind of a personable person, but you know, getting back into the habit of not wearing pajamas until noon is going to be hard. And sitting in a classroom with a whole bunch of other people where there's the distractions of other people looking at their phones and, and clicking their pens isn't something I thought about a bunch over the last year, but will be interesting to get back to. Since the pandemic started, I also haven't had a cold and I'm not looking back to getting sick when other people don't wash their hands. Or in the case that I forget to wash my hand, as I'm sure we've all done when you're starving and you run into a cafeteria looking for food. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I'm not going back anywhere, but I've had these visions of when I finally interact with people again, am I gonna like remember how to look at them, where to stand, how to move my face. These super simple things that I kind of got used to over the years. I'm pretty sure I'm going to just be terrible at all of them when it comes time to actually interact with people in person. <laughs> where do you put your hands when you talk to people? I think I've forgotten this. So I think I tend to move mine a lot. I think when I was younger, I think I used to just hold them very awkwardly by my side and it didn't feel right. And then I realized they could kind of help me to express some of my energy. So then I just started moving them around crazily. And that's actually been a challenge for being remote. If I were to give a talk, I'd be like in the front of the room, like jumping and pointing and moving and like having a fun time. But when you're behind a video, it's really kind of hard to express that same energy. So I, I don't have a good answer to your question. I'm not sure where you're supposed to. But I feel like if in doubt, just gesticulate and use them to extend your expression to something larger. Okay, I think that's a good plan. I was just thinking about it the other day. Like, but I'm on a Zoom call. I do move my hands around. Not often can people see me. But when you're in a classroom, when you're standing awkwardly in the corner of a hallway talking to someone, it's going to be interesting to get back to someone can see more than just my face. What is the rest of my body language telling them? And is it actually telling them what I'm maybe trying to perceive, which is like not complete awkwardness, although that's maybe what they perceive. 
if you couldn't pursue a degree in computer science, you just couldn't study it, what would you want to do? If I couldn't pursue a degree in computer science, I think that I probably would have gone for something in engineering. I really like to treat life like a series of projects. I, I love jumping from one project to the next, but then I, I think that I will probably look back on my life as you know, a timeline of projects. What was I doing at what point? Because to me, it's so much fun to say, you know, nobody else is doing this at the moment, or wouldn't it be fun if we could do X or Y and kind of dive into that. And so if, you know, computers hadn't been invented or I, I didn't end up in computer science for some reason, probably science would have been some STEM field asking questions and then being able to go and investigate them, I think would be fun. But ultimately something in in engineering, just in helping people or coming up with some physical tool or something to help people would be great. That sounds like a good option. So final question, what do you like to do when you aren't programming? Well, definitely sleep, but also reading. Over the, the past year, I've taken some time to get back into reading books because as a kid, I, I read a whole bunch of books and it was so much fun. And I think that as you get into high school, you get kind of burnt out reading. At least for me, I went to kind of a weird, it was a charter school, which is publicly funded, but tries to treat itself like a private school. There's a bunch of charter schools in Arizona, and we read a ton of books and we gave presentations and wrote essays all of the time. And so I think that I truly got burnt out in high school. And then going into college was this, you know, I'm still doing a lot of work, don't get me wrong, but there was this level of, I'm not reading as many literary books, or I'm not, I'm not being forced to read as much, maybe read code from time to time. But over the past year, given the pandemic, I have really gotten back into reading, especially older science fiction, but also scientific books, memoirs of people. If anybody is looking for good book recommendations, the two that are on the tip of my tongue, at least for science fiction, Dune, which is a book becoming a movie very soon here. And Foundations by Isaac Asimov is a very interesting take on a future world. I think that I like science fiction a lot because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to live till Space Pirates, but I'd like to at least think that I'm one every once in a while. I don't know if I'd want to encounter a space pirate, but I haven't read the book, so I will, I will have an open mind. <laughs> there, there's no space pirates in Dune or in Foundations, but... I think that, you know, traveling around, if space travel was as common as getting in a car or something, that is a world that I'm very envious of future generations to be able to explore. Oh, there would, there would definitely be space pirates. I, I totally agree. So Alec, it has been such a pleasure to have you on RSC Stories and to work with you this past summer. You're really the first person that I've ever encountered that I think has whatever disease that I have where you get really excited about ideas and projects. And it just was such a pleasure and honor to be able to work with you and kind of move at like a quick pace and just so much fun. I know you're going to have just a huge impact on our field. I mean, I feel like you already are. And I selfishly, I hope we get to work together again. Oh, absolutely. I've had so much fun working with you, Vanessa. It's been an honor to be able to work with you and really, yeah, get to know somebody who is not obsessively a workaholic, but just is full of fun and crazy ideas and willing to drop stuff on a weekend or sometime in the week and just build something on a whim. It's a great quality to have in somebody that you're working with. And 
I share your sentiment. Getting the opportunity to work with you again, I would definitely take it. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time today and for being on RSC Stories. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Vanessa. It's been a super fun time.